0: You're listening to Liz Taylor of Monash University and of This Must Be The Place podcast. The material you're about to hear was put together as part of the Amplify project. Amplify Story Resistance Radio is a part live pirate radio performance and part sound exhibition based out of Sydney. Amplify is about the importance of speaking out and the importance of listening in urban politics. In the following episode, I have a discussion with Paul Long, about music, memory and migration, the importance of also runs, unlicensed radio and other ephemera in the story of Birmingham as a music city. All right. Can you hear me? I can. I can hear your accent, which we were trying to place geographically. So I'm here now with... Are you a professor? Or so, I'm not sure. Title?
1: You can call me professor.
0: <laughs> Possible professor. <laughs> Paul in Cultural Industries. Paul, Paul Long, Cultural Industries, also from Moneta University. And Paul... First of all, where is your accent from?
1: I'm from Birmingham in the Midlands of the United Kingdom.
0: Is that a music city?
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, if you saw the Commonwealth Games, as is often the case with mega events now, it was uh, prefaced and uh, finished with Massive Celebration, uh, which featured both historic bands Black Sabbath, uh, as well as contemporary rhyme artists, big centre for Reggae, Bunga, all sorts of music that reflects what would have once been called obviously the Commonwealth uh, migration, new migrations too. So in some ways similar to the diversity of of a place like Melbourne.
0: One of the things we are discussing before, I I think I will put this in order as though... Anyway, Seamus was saying that um, Melbourne, perhaps our music, the way our music culture is talked about, perhaps doesn't really capture the diversity of the migration that the city has seen. So my, so Birmingham does that. It, the music scene is representative of all the.
1: Yeah, and I think that's become um, part of the the, the marketing and self image of the city. Although I think if you if you look historically, and actually pondering this at the moment with colleagues uh, from back home, is there is certainly a point where popular music wasn't a virtue to celebrating a place like a city I'll give you a signal moment mm. would have been the late 70s Steel Pulse's Hansworth Revolution album which puts both Hansworth uh, a, a site in the, in the city which is particularly important for settlement of people from the Caribbean although it's much more diverse than that and typically Hansworth Revolution being conscious reggae is about oppression and the experience of you know, negative many negative experiences of, of uh, settlement in the UK. Uh, so, finding ourselves in a point where this can be celebrated is a curious position to be in.
0: Celebrating an experience of oppression? In, uh, in I wouldn't say
1: it's directly that, but you can see how these things have been acculturated. As I guess it might be, it might be witness to the degree to which uh, a place can take on these challenging narratives, and it's the sort of thing I'm. Pondering all the time. Um, same with bands like UB40, who started off and are still relatively conscious about their politics. I should say that coming to Melbourne as I did four years ago, conversely, I'm really struck coming here by a different experience of diversity. And it's a thing I've been trying to make sense of myself, as a, funnily enough, as a music and creative city about how migration and settlement plays out, and obviously also that relationship with First Nations people. Um, So in my role as Director of Monash Migration Inclusion Centre, in fact before that I started to think about the role of organisations like the Bois and labels like Music in Exile in nurturing diverse musical sounds, but also the way in which they, if you like, happen organically and entrepreneurially.
0: And they're they're sort of... Can they be fostered? Is it something that, that government has a role in or is it sort of happenstance that, that the right people come together in a in a place like Birmingham? And...
1: I guess the question about whether government can have a hand is also a question of whether anybody wants government to have a hand.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, not everyone's on the same no, page there. For no, sure.
1: And despite, what? I mean, your question in response to my point about Birmingham suggested perhaps that it was at ease with some of these uh, more tendentious Uh, Perspectives from the past Which I don't think is the case And even now, you know, if you celebrate grime music Which Can be pretty challenging In its reflection upon You know, marginalisation Urban violence You know, particular types of Perspective on um, Contemporary living Not exactly the sort of thing you probably want to put in your Tourist brochures about the, the Nature of how you want to sell things To
0: shutdown yeah it's a economy and I, I'm interested in that as well and the sort of trickiness around which is what I was talking to Shane and Seamus about as well the role of music and cultural policy as a kind of um, branding inclusive narrative mm. or exercise in saying well, this is this is what our city is and mm. using it to I guess um, make a place have an identity and and make it sort of consumable to put a bit of a of rough spin on it. But then it, the relationship between music and the state, is it's not – often it's against the, that, you know, it comes out of a relationship to government and state that's either hostile or barely tolerant. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah.
1: And it may also be an indicator of the acculturation of particular ways of seeing popular music. And as we've seen recently in COVID, you know, there's both a kickback against government interference and then at certain times
0: mm. uh,
1: a demand that they do intervene and support – the, the sector.
0: Mm.
1: In the end, that tells you a lot about the, the way in which we see the virtues or otherwise of state intervention because so many of us have given up on that idea because we've been, again, nurtured in a pretty neoliberal environment <laughs> for the last 30 <laughs> years, right, yeah. and atomized. Um And here I think the difference is also about the size of the market, you know, different expectations. Um, That's smaller here. Yeah, here. And, and I guess the curious thing for me is despite that, there is quite a prodigious uh, amount of scenes. The other thing that one notices is one of, the, one of the ways in which I plugged into Melbourne as a resident was through radio, as yes. we we're here to discuss yep. radio. So Triple R or PBS, for instance, um, I know they have their detractors. Were quite useful for me mm. for plugging into both knowledge about local culture, musical culture, uh, and I thought. I, I certainly still think that they're very different to the audio landscape of the UK or even locally living in a place like Birmingham.
0: Do you want to give a picture of that? Um, historical and contemporary, what has been the role of licensed and unlicensed radio sure. in a city like Birmingham? Yeah.
1: Well, I guess the, most people's encounter with radio would be through – we have the national broadcaster, of course – and until relatively recently also licensed independent radio so Birmingham had a big local station BRMB which interestingly also operated very much in public service mm. and rather like the BBC's local station and even BBC national did amazing things to nurture local music also you know recording sessions but increasingly because of how the commercial model of radio has changed uh, that got sloughed off, and even even a lot of the local identity for commercial radio. I mean, you know, they say that, uh, and you'll, you'll, the touring distance here, I think, makes for a different experience of just travelling around. But, you know, you can cross the UK, and within four hours, you know, you'll have encountered 20 different stations. But they all sound exactly the same. Mm. You can drive around Melbourne and hear loads of different stations, and they all sound... Relatively different, right? And the programming can be very different. I'm not saying it's necessarily good programming. Um, it can be quite challenging to really plug in and some of it's a bit habitual, maybe even lazy. The, in the, the context of the UK, the thing to recognise is that the dominance of licensed radio, first of all, we we have the term pirate mm. for, on licensed radio largely because, at least in the UK perspective, its association with this attempt to break the BBC monopoly in the Mm. 60s. So, you know, these stations would, or or unlicensed stations, would broadcast on ships from outside of... Literally boats. Yeah, yeah. Did they
0: self-identify as pirates? uh, You know, I'm not
1: sure if it was self-identified or it's one of those tabloid terms. And one of the problems is it's one of those terms that obfuscates the meaning of these things. But it's where a lot of so-called talent was nurtured in uh, the UK. But it also, funny enough, raises questions about who actually heard those stations, OK? Because if you're broadcasting from outside of national waters, largely you're going to reach the the coast of the Mm. city. Although, you know, some of these things did have powerful transmitters. They range far and wide. The other thing is the UK also received broadcasts from Europe, Mm. So, Radio Luxembourg, which had UK offices, was also an important space for hearing about music. And we think about music, right? Yeah. Um, the The appearance of let's call them pirates for want of a better word, unlicensed radio, um, really starts, I think, to make its mark in the seventies and eighties, particularly in urban spaces like Birmingham and London. And the 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 appearance of them is largely about addressing a lack of inclusion of public service broadcasting or commercial. So for instance, the voices of different communities. Mm. So my experience particularly is associating a licensed radio with um, black communities and genres of black music. So, and and the interesting thing about both being a listener and to some extent, you know, being interested in a scholarly policy way was the way in which they gave you access to both um, music, which wasn't really being broadcast. Uh, The voice of presenters Mm -hmm. and, you know, the cadences of what I think Katie Moylan, a colleague who studies uh, radio, talks about accented radio. And in so doing, because they weren't public service as such, they also connected to other aspects of um, uh, the economy. So you get a lot of adverts for the very stores that would sell the music. Often they were a front for labels and stores, right? What about venues? Venues, you know, uh, but also other types of business. So it's quite funny being, you know, a kind of uh, a white uh, man from the UK is listening to lots of uh, broadcasting about how to get your hair done in black salons, right, Uh, which do not really have much to do with me. But obviously there's a great affection and engagement amongst all sorts of communities with um, music of... Of, of the Caribbean but also I should say ways of presenting other communities Bangra music and so on and so forth um, again I speak as a listener as much as anything because uh, like my comments about community focused radio here it could be both really effective other times it could be really pedestrian and you often notice this when you're listening to someone you know the feedback the poor mixing uh, the other thing about using radio as a promotional device is the. in fact I can name various records in which this happened where they were just almost on rotation back to back all the time right mm-hmm. just to promote particular types of disc yeah but at the same time you know they're also interesting places when you listen over decades how they transmute in terms of different genres how they also connect going back to your point about venues Later in the eighties and throughout the nineties and early twenties uh, is also the way in which they promote, um, for one of a better word, raves or dance events, mm. which also had an unlicensed, unlicensed quality. identity. Yeah, you know. Mm. Uh, so I think you in, in Birmingham, for instance, it would have been a station called Silk Radio, um, which tended to be you know uh, drum and bass, uh, contemporary you know R and B and stuff, and a lot of it would be promoting events as much as the recordings. Yeah. And you'd have to ring a mobile phone and call up for it. I never did this because I thought, well, I'm not sure I'm going to ring up someone out of the blue and ask for a, a what ticket. What
0: did you ask for? A ticket you know you Yeah, you'd yeah. arrange
1: a range of ticket or whatever, you know, or they'd be promoting particular events. And again, interestingly, promoting spaces and events outside of the kind of things that you would find in the more conventional, what's on, uh-huh. time out type of uh, promotional mm-hmm. um devices magazines or otherwise because obviously not only would they have been more cost effective but also because you're marketing di- directly to an interesting audience rather than diluting it through a catch central mm. space
0: so, so get a sense of you know these unlicensed or pirate radio how many I mean maybe you want to pick a point in time but how many would there have been versus the BBC versus maybe commercial licensed radio operating? What's the sort of mix?
1: You know, I don't know because one of the other things – well, some of them were serious businesses, right? Yeah. They were they were organised in many ways as a, a riposte to the exclusion mm. uh, of the broadcasting landscape. So I think in Birmingham, PCRL, for instance um, – despite the fact that they were often raided, prosecuted, oh. had equipment, um, confiscated, they would still keep going right. because they had a purpose. And ultimately, you know, when the re- when the landscape of broadcasting uh, changed, they could also make application to become a licensed broadcaster. But the thing that one would notice uh, across the... And again, this is why I've found it frustrating over time about the degree to which this could be documented, is... The different identities that stations would inhabit. Sometimes it would be the same station.
0: They use a different name. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah.
1: And again, it could be frustrating if, as a listener, you would get locked into a favourite style or a, um, a particular DJ, and then find them really hard. But I'm, I'm thinking, you know, semi to some degree pre digital yeah. age, right? So, you know. Trying to plug into this is itself again. As a media historian, I'm fascinated by the fact that this genuinely ephemeral moment. Yeah, is that's much what lost. I'm
0: getting. It's like even then, that sort of at the time. I mean, how would you find the right yeah wavelength? Although whatever?
1: I, I should say that one of the fascinating things about this, if we look at some London stations, um, there has been an attempt to dig out some evidence in history, you know, old cassette tapes oh, yeah. of, of stations. I mean, I'll give you an example. A character like Giles Peterson, who I know is quite popular as a DJ when he comes to Melbourne, Who still broadcasts for BBC Six, runs his own Brownswood label. In fact, you know, he's part of Worldwide FM, an online station. Occasionally digs out old tapes from um, the early 80s, right? Um, Types of
0: radio, broadcast, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and again, that would have been you know tower like block radio. Um, there's an interesting article by uh, a grime scholar, Alex DeLacy which also does a similar thing that looks at tape recordings of grime performances. Uh. Again, the reason why this is important to note is if we look within the last 20 years, it's amazing to talk about grime as you know, 20 years old. But when grime started in, you know, in London, it wasn't as a it wasn't taking place necessarily in live venues or on record. It would often take place live in radio studios with people, you know, um, the DJs or guests um, spitting bars, as they say. And so, recordings of this moment of of these competitions and face-offs are actually invaluable. Mm. And the spaces in which these were taking place were done away with by, you know, the the building for the Olympics. So, again, you know, pirate radio, for want of a better phrase, is both worthy of our investigation historically, but, um, again, I don't know the landscape in in, uh, Australia for unlicensed radio or whether one would notice.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is... um, I didn't invite you in to do an explicit contrast, but there seems to be a distinct identity radio identity mainly here we've been talking about community like so licensed non-profit mm. radio as being important haven't really talked much about people that are act- were or are actively kind of breaking the law to run mm. a radio station mm. where that seems to be have been pretty important it's
1: and- i guess n- now that you can stream online it seems less likely that people want to take mm. a chance yeah and I thought- you know if it does involve any kind of law breaking Mm-hmm. Um, and penalty. Why do that when you can do it online? Mm. Although obviously that then incurs questions about intellectual property when using music.
0: And it and may so also, so I forth. mean, this is a, you asked it as a rhetorical question, but this is something I'm interested in is why do local radio, local venues, things that are kind of grounded in a place and a sort of analogue almost technology when you can do digital, is there a reason to, you know, do people have a sort of, Draw to that kind of technology, or is it just something in your your view that you know that was what's available, and now digital is available, so we use that?
1: I mentioned Katie Moylan earlier, so I'll I'll speak to her work as she's an interesting scholar of radio. She's been studying uh, the use of radio by indigenous cultures, and while they do use digital means, and you can reach diasporic communities that way, broadcasting to a geographical specific area is really important because you can do a lot for the community in that way. So it still matters, you know, the old idea of a a footprint. So, I mean, I've, I've been a listener to um, digital radio since its inception, partly because it was often better than, um, you know, public service (laughs) broadcasting. Again, you know, if you're interested in particular genres, um, I mean, an early station for me, was something called, I think it was called boom, boom box radio, where they just programmed this endless array of, reggae, soul, jazz, you know, grime, whatever. It was amazing. I couldn't figure out how they did it because it was pre-streaming, you know, platform. So, but again, going back, I think how we think about community of the air is not always, I mean, we can think obviously the way in which radio can broadcast to a nation, but it had very specific geographical reach. The the kind of grime station programming I mentioned earlier, or, you know, in a London or even PCRL... (laughs) Uh, and, and stations out of Afro-Caribbean communities in Birmingham had very specific um, geographical like reaches. Like a suburb or something like that. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah, No, no, definitely. I mentioned, you know, let's take Steel Pulse, Hansworth Revolution. So if you go around inner Birmingham, you know, that's a kind of place of settlement because it would have been cheaper or because of prejudice, whatever. So there's a historical resonance there. Actually, as people's... Um, Settlement patterns change over mm. time. It makes it more difficult to, you know, with a homemade kiss to broadcast, yep. to reach all the people you want to reach. Yeah, so, so they the online in is in one spot and then the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I suppose mm. I, I guess when I have to think about how digital changed that. I mean, I can think vividly about, you know, having my first car with a digital radio and trying to scan. And they were pretty adept at making sure they programmed the uh, identity tag for the station. But the fact that it wasn't always on, and you'd have to, you know, go out in the middle of the night to listen to it—not <laughs> <laughs> that I did, by the way.
0: Right, I was imagining you doing that. I, I I've, of... I've
1: actually got in search of radio before, you know.
0: This it seems to me to be kind of um, a similar process to the the task of a curator or a historian. You know, someone that is tuning into these stations and trying to find them and sort of really having a listening relationship to them and not necessarily being part of that community. You do the same thing over history. You're trying to find these traces and put them back together. and
1: it's also, when I think about it, it's also about the degree to which one is an active listener or pursuant Mm. of stations rather than, you know, that thing of just scanning stations Mm -hmm. and hoping for, you know, again, a, a, a very... In my mind, driving across country and moving from one station to another, which is effectively the same kind of station and banal repartee of the phone in or whatever, you know, just kind of, it's a wonder we don't crash more often because of it. But, and then if I think about, for instance, driving on the periphery in Paris, sounds really exotic, but, you know, usually getting lost. And then actually across that dial, encountering 20 or more stations of entirely different character. Mm. I don't know if they would have been unlicensed, but, you know, again, reflective of quite a diverse uh, set of communities and geography, right?
0: Yeah, and it's sort of the same, like a lot of the tourist experiences is this sort of tension between wanting to go and find something different, but then also wanting to understand, you know, I understand this restaurant, I understand this television channel and so on. And so to different people, they're looking for the kind of big scale, global, Mm. familiar place and sound and others that's that sort of local thing is what
1: Mm. I found it much easier to plug into Australia through radio Mm. than television, I think.
0: I think that's yeah, probably reflective of well I would make an argument, the sort of licensing and and financial structure. We we do have I think there is one community TV station which is really funny. What's it called again? The one out of RMIT. And they used to have in the middle of the night you could just watch a, a a live shot of a goldfish bowl. Oh, nice. And that, then a lot of really interesting characters did their own shows, but there wasn't radio. There's not the equivalent of radio. Having yeah. a lot of I think there's a reason for that. It, I want didn't to go Channel back,
1: 7 nicked that idea as for the yeah, part of their programming, right?
0: They probably directly milked it. I think some of the people from Channel 31, that's it, they went on to become big name stars. In fact, a sort of depressing process of going from that environment to corporate television. Mm. I wanted to backtrack a little bit, though, to say what you've described as the B- of the BBC and the national radio being, you know, all similar in the past and perhaps now. What w- In terms of, say, the Caribbean community, were they actively just not programmed or what was the sort of gatekeeper relationship there?
1: Oh, no, I think you would. There was some programming and very fondly remembered, really important, you know, but a bit like alternative radio. I mean, some... Some people in ours will be familiar with the uh, British DJ John Peel, who yeah, you know, was really important to programming alternative independent music in the UK. But again, a real focal point for that amongst largely generic. Uh, I say generic, that's probably unfair because public service broadcasting isn't generic. It's trying to accommodate a lot of different folk. But if I think about some of the DJs, like um, Ranking Miss P, for instance, again, a, a black woman and a black woman being one of the first uh, national program DJs these are important but also tended to be mixed around in the schedule mm. put it late at night mm-hmm. you know would never have been considered to take over the breakfast show which yeah. is in- interesting for public service broadcaster as opposed to a commercial uh, station mm. again you know we found that there would have been some broadcasting uh, for local commercial radio. Um, Again, this is all stuff that would merit closer inspection and investigation, because some of this is me thinking in terms of memory, but also what I know of some investigations of this area. And then I guess now, because of digital, if we took the BBC as an example, the compartmentalisation is across different stations. Mm. So it can be a, a station dedicated to Asian and, you know, music of black origin to use that term but then there's a crossover into a station like BBC uh, Radio 6 which is a bit like you know John Peel writ large but it can be quite draining to listen to these people it's like being mansplained all the time about you know <laughs> what's good and bad about music by I these imagine, of, yeah. you know over enthusiastic uh, big brothers probably on too much um, stimulation
0: yeah, it's a fine line, isn't it? That sort of we're cultural wanting to have it, and then sort of how you access it. Mm. There's a sort of sometimes a, you know, that's part of what people fondly remember, and other times that's a real, real barrier. Is how mm. you know who's the who's the host, who's the gatekeeper, the label. They they obviously have this power, cura- curatorial power. Yeah, yeah. And
1: absolutely. I think again, you know, we're talking about a, a space in which you know our taste matters, mm. even though. A lot of programming seems to try and exercise the very concept of taste. Everything's fantastic. Three thumbs up, you know.
0: That's <laughs> true. No, it's that I hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, that is. The...
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, that's again, it's quite interesting for me listening to. Uh, I've got my regulars now on PBS or Triple R, but it's interesting the disjunctures between shows over the schedule. That there's not really, and even within you know, the space of a schedule. It's, sometimes it's not me for six when I hear a kind of mad tune being played and I stop and think, wow, that's an interesting choice, you know, of, of how you think about flow in a station. Maybe it also teaches you how you become, again, acculturated to, you know, let's say, the Seattle-based way of programming to the hour. and So the the, the, the organisation of the clock, yeah, that's yeah. one of those. It, is it Doug Rothenbluer who pointed this out? So how you programme music and your ads or whatever uh, is yeah. organised to the clock in the same way, you know, the day is organised, drive time, yeah. all of those things about how we think about our daily schedule. I mean, I suppose radio is not as dominant uh, anymore, but... When you are driving They still or, say or de- drive time. And yeah. Those,
0: yeah. Breakfast time. It's
1: probably yeah. responsible for a lot of road rage, to be honest with you, if you've ever listened to drive time radio.
0: It seems to feed into it, yeah. I mean, yeah. my research is often about transport and traffic and things like that, and there is some kind of, I don't know, it's an odd match, isn't it, of between the point where millions of people are driving a car and then listening to radio that is sort of simultaneously, look, I don't listen to it, but. It seems to be characterised by the maximum amount of kind of inane chatter. Mm. And then here's some news to get you angry. Mm. I've got – and why don't you call in and tell us how angry you are? Mm.
1: <laughs> well, again, it's it's probably over-emphatic to think of radio as music radio when so much of it is chatter, oh, yeah. talk, and, you know, zoo formats. Mm. I know a colleague who hates triple I. Oh, it's all, they're almost talking, <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, this this particular interview and the, the Pirate Radio part is, I guess I'm focused on music, but radio is just as much about talking. Yeah. So, yeah, but
1: again, you know, hearing different voices, different accents, even people not doing that kind of mid-Atlantic slick spiel is also interesting. That's the interesting thing about unlicensed radio, I think, is the degree to which, I guess we, I mentioned earlier how it could be bad radio. And I didn't mean just bad radio as in thinking it's not as good as, you know, something programmed um, from Seattle or whatever by some robotic DJ. Just like technically, yeah, bad, people getting stuff wrong, leaving the mic open and getting feedback, you know, which is just... But on the other hand, you know, amateurism is, is pretty noble as well, right? So again, having that... I remember once distinctly being at work. I used to work for this um, book company at home, and they listened to like local... Um, quite radio all the time, and the two of the DJs just got absolutely wasted drinking whiskey on air, mm. and it was just the most unprofessional thing, but really funny. Yeah, I would right. probably
0: have enjoyed it. <laughs> I think, depends what, yeah, it, it's an interesting, like, I don't think that everyone, and I would put myself in this category, necessarily wants to hear a professional person on the radio.
1: This is the thing, again, I'm acutely aware of from the UK, is professional tends to mean middle class mm. You know, so listening to Radio 4, which is still pretty diverse in the UK, is also infuriating for the way in which it privileges a particular type of viewpoint. And that tends to become accented in a very banal type of thing. It's particularly noticeable in current affairs or news programming.
0: Whether consciously or otherwise sort of sounds the same. Mm. The whole constant, you know, hourly, daily content accumulating over years. Mm. So it's a lot of content going in, but it somehow ends up yeah. sort
1: of in a I mean, the other thing that's made me think of is, of course, um, a lot of unlicensed radio doesn't have the resources to program anything apart from music and adverts. So the idea of actually programming news, although I have heard unlicensed radios where they do actually put a, a news stream through, which is not theirs, <laughs> or, you know, send out correspondence to commentate on sports and so on and so mm. forth. So, you know, they do lack programming diversity quite often.
0: I wanted to, I guess, finish up by asking about your academic role, um, your interest is about this kind of cultural heritage side Mm. of it. So what are the different ways in which places like Birmingham remember music, particularly in audio music, in terms of places, people, the actual technology and things like that? Sure. Give some examples.
1: Well, it's quite an intense space of competition, to be honest with you, when you come out of a place of diversity. So I'll give you an example. I mentioned earlier Black Sabbath come from uh, Birmingham and there's an organisation, a local organisation called Capsule who over the last 15 years have been programming celebrations of the city as the birthplace of heavy metal. So it's called... They've had two major exhibitions called Home of Metal. Uh, The last one was Just Before I Came Away which celebrated the 50th year since Black Sabbath had released its first album. And there's a pretty good case about, you know, this coming out. There's a lot of mythology about that. But on the other hand... Heavy metal is only one genre, mm. although it can be quite a diverse genre. In one, when one compares it to, say, let's say, you know, reggae heritage or whatever, again, the interesting uh, heritage project in the city about, also claiming that uh, contemporary Bhangra came from the city, although it's a Punjabi music, but it's hybrid form. Uh, you know, more modern inflections taking on sort of reggae and rap. Uh, claim comes out of Birmingham, which is also the home of one of the biggest major uh, record labels in the world at one time, uh, which itself has been curated and is going to be celebrated in an exhibition, fully enough, in Manchester, rather than <laughs> Birmingham. And I was closely involved. I did have a kind of um, supportive role for Home of Metal, but it's certainly not something I would claim. And, you know, it's a very valiant and important aspect. But I was also involved in another a project that came out of a relatively entrepreneurial uh, space, which was Birmingham Music Archive, which you can see online. And that was celebrating a broader uh, range of, of music heritage in the city. And what that means is not just let's list the music, but look at the role that locals have played, the venues, which mm-hmm. often disappear. Yeah. we all know this in Melbourne. But, you know, people keep ephemera, but it's also a way of seeing how important Music is uh, to people's identity. So it's uh, one of the important things is recognizing not just the big names, but sometimes they also ran, <laughs> you know, the never ran, the thank God they never succeeded types, you know, and, and thinking about why, why this means to people and why people have such fond memories. Although sometimes that can turn into relatively, you know, oh, it's so much better in the old days. Yeah. That's... But even as I mentioned earlier, thinking about a relatively what seems to be very modern, futuristic sound like grime, is already decades old, but its origins need recognising and documenting. Well, I would argue they need documenting. And I find, you know, again, Melbourne's quite interesting as a music heritage city. Um, you know, St Kilda's got this St Kilda's um, All Right exhibition. Even Ira where I live, has got this mini historical uh, exhibition at the town hall about its music culture. Really? really fascinating, oh. right? Um, you know, churches that used to put on gigs with a thousand people turning up, right?
0: Yeah, we were talking about these before. Yeah, the and I think it also circle. tells
1: you a lot about how in a city like Melbourne, which is pretty much moved towards, as a music city, the venues, the particular focus on CBD or let's say north of the river, have distracted perhaps from historically and even now where other things take place mm-hmm. I should go back I think to just mention again things I'm discovering here not that I'm the, because other people have introduced me to them is moving out across different suburbs and discovering places like Dandenong or whatever is the other you know a range of different types of um, music and cultural communities doing things which sometimes are not publicly recognized or supported by government as much as you know things that perhaps are more appealing to a whether it's a touristic audience or not. But, I mean, I argue heritage is important, but some places, you know, contemporary musicians sometimes get a bit irritated by focus on the past.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask that as a, as a point as well. It, there is a, a sense or a risk, I guess, that once you start talking about, you know, the birthplace of the heritage and it's got a little bit of the touch of the... Um, is there, there's a nasty word for, you know, acts when they come back and do a kind of reunion tour... Mm. It's, it's kind of like at the expense of whatever's happening now. Sure.
1: So. Even even older acts, you know, I mean, st- who are still going, are still burdened with an expectation that they will
0: yeah. play
1: the hits. You know, if you go and see McCartney, are people really going to want to see or they're going to be barracking for a full set of McCartney 3? <laughs> I mean, personally, I, I really I like artists. Not, <laughs> well, I, I like it when artists are still doing new work, right? Mm. I mean, I suppose you think like McCartney does, Neil Young you know, loads of artists do this kind of thing. But the, the longer you go, the more you're burdened with your own standards, your own repertoire. But the same happens to places, you know. And the
0: yeah.
1: again, the curious thing about music heritage, which I've also been interested in arguing, is it's closely aligned with, you know, the music business. Mm. So unlike a lot of other fields of heritage activity... When the David Bowie exhibition toured the world, it also did a lot for his catalogue. Um, and the music business is involved in a lot of repackaging and curation and promotion of, you know, the importance of stuff from the past, which largely means digging out a pile of old crap and telling us it's really culturally important.
0: And then they, yeah, so there is a kind of cynical read of it, then then they they benefit from it. But yeah.
1: again, you know, you could say the same about, you know, literary history, about the digging out... of. Uh, I'm making a leap here to compare Shakespeare with uh, Dylan or the Beatles, but, you know, people are always interested in fragments and offcuts and drafts of, you know, the great works. Yeah. yeah. So people seem endlessly fascinated by, you know, Dylan box sets and Beatles outtakes and what have you.
0: Yeah, and sort of sense of, I don't know, that's got that, you know, touch of genius thing. It's like this is the, you know, everything they touched was sort of gold. That's a particular kind of way of telling history and obsessing over that, which mm. I guess it, it has a wide appeal. And then there's, right. I guess, it's a different, but there's something aligned about the kind of people that know every obscure band from you know Birmingham sure. in the nineteen eighties or something.
1: But <laughs> the same here, I think. You know, I mean, my colleague at uh, Griffith, Sarah Baker, has worked with uh, people like Zelmae Cantillon and others in places like Wollongong and dug out their history. You know, the Steel City Sand and then you see this happening in. Ventures across Australia, places like Adelaide. Next year, we've got um, 60 years since the Beatles toured. So we're thinking about how to mark that occasion and think about what's the specificity of the Beatles here. Sometimes it's a nostalgia fest. Sometimes it can be a really interesting way of getting people to dig out really meaningful uh, memories, you know, because what Australia was like 60 years ago is clearly... Slightly different to how it is now.
0: Yes, that, that you're so caref- carefully understating <laughs> how different it is. So, and that's our uh, music is a way of music history, and music is a way of yeah. understanding that. And those
1: so, those bands coming. I don't want to just point at an Anglo band like the Beatles, but you know, you go around um, Melbourne. If you look in different stores or restaurants you'll see posters of artists from loads of different uh, destinations not just locally grown but who will travel internationally are pretty accomplished professionals who will come and play to you know audiences of Afghanistani uh, communities iranian you know you go around uh, elston we can find really interesting um, productions around jewish comedians um or musicians, so on and so forth. So it's quite a, an interesting space to learn about the communities in which we live.
0: That's true, yeah. And I saw, I can't remember the name, but some German friends of mine sent a poster, like, just shock and sort of a sense of slightly um, not exactly happy about it. Because there's a version of country music, I think, in Germany that mm. Germans, sort of some of them find it embarrassing. And one of these artists is touring in Australia and they're a bit like, Who would have thought it here? But there's a market for this, and that's sort of a yeah. Maybe that's the sort of generic comment I would make. Music, despite digital, despite global, these kinds of things, it is a little bit of a reminder. Firstly, that things change, the place you live in change, and also that there's just a lot of people out there that aren't you. You might, if you listen to a single national broadcaster or corporate broadcaster, you can sort of Manage to not think about that, but Mm. if you sort of even take a slight interest in different radios, different histories, and Mm. you you do, whether you like it or not, and as you say, sometimes it's bad, but it's just a reminder that people eat, listen, have Mm. different tastes. Mm. So,
1: As you say, though, you know, they remind us of different communities. One of the stories I've been told is that um, traditional Greek music is better preserved in Australia than it is in Greece because of the, obviously, the settlement, but also historically before the digits or whatever, how divorced communities can be from the changes that happen to the place that they originate from or their, you know, parents or their grandparents originated from. So the nature of change and preservation is quite an interesting one, right?
0: I like my husband's parents are Maltese and the other day, just to sort of get a rise out of them, I guess, we went on YouTube and picked a playlist called Old time Maltese favorites, and mm-hmm. they're completely digitally illiterate. Do not have even a mobile phone or anything like that. And they had that moment of like, "Oh, this is what we used to listen to at you know the dance halls and all that kind of stuff." In a way, the fact that you just listen to it online cheapens it, but it's also like really fun to see that. And they should... like they all have they have these records buried in the yeah. attic somewhere.
1: Well, again, <laughs> in terms of you know how we celebrate heritage i should give a shout out on the maltese note to an academic called tony sant who actually started a maltese music heritage site and the digital of course is both a place that people can share memories and things and digitize images but again going back to the radio idea it's also a place where you can gather together recordings so one of the things that's worth recognizing is and maybe it's an analog to unlicensed radio is not everything that has ever been produced musically is available to stream, no matter what you think about the billions of um, records online. So we find across different social media sites, people across YouTube, for instance, people who will stream, record um, stuff that by and large isn't available. And sometimes that's because they feel they're doing a public service, it can be a bit arch, that you know, but unlikely that people are making any money out of it. Um, And they're interested in sharing. They're kind of, you know, what I would call, or my colleague uh, Holly Tessa would call, citizen scholars, you know. So they're interested in learning about where this stuff came from. And again, preserving stuff that might otherwise disappear.
0: Yeah, so that that, that is the kind of potential version of the internet, I think, writ large. Yeah, yeah.
1: Again, you know, you find... Sometimes it's academics working. Sometimes they just discover community um, endeavours. You know, we'll find lots of examples, for instance, of cassette culture across Middle Eastern countries. There's an amazing array of stuff out there. Mm. And it might only matter to a few people. But again, it's fascinating to encounter and discover why and how people do this.
0: So final question, which I asked those guys before, you know, is it a good news story, bad news story? Looking forward... What do you see as kind of um, new trends, opportunities or, or um, threats in a way around how places and technology and people intersect around music? Is it something that's going to – new things are happening or there's certain constraints around it? either Melbourne or Birmingham? What's, what's I guess happening?
1: I don't know Melbourne enough um, and I'm too old to go out and get involved in subcultures. And I'm always surprised about how much um, – there is to learn about what's happening and where. And again, going back to, you know, the diversity of Melbourne, it's discovering, you know, that there can be a Punjabi artist filling out Marvel Stadium, for instance, or I'll meet someone, a taxi driver who's listening to Iranian music. So there's still a lot to listen out for, right? I guess part of the challenge, as ever, for music and digitisation is that trend we've seen about, you know, the gathering up and protection of or even the acquisition of IP. Mm. And it's not so much, I think, that big companies are looking to own everything. The problem is, is owning stuff that they want to get the last uh, drop of uh, money out of. So, you know, Hypnosis, the UK-based investment company, for instance, paying whatever half a billion for Fleetwood Max catalogue, means that they need to place that music across radio, film, Elevators, whatever, to ensure that for the next hundred years and. you're going to be hearing Rihanna, or you know, mm. you make loving good, whatever, endlessly, yeah. and you're not going to get to hear so much of. Um, I'd name some Aussie bands that uh, I was interested in the kind of mad names that uh, Aussie bands have, or even just interesting, challenging out there. That, but the as Grime tells you, going back to radio. The spaces where people make music and how they make it aren't just through the digital it can be live it can be in, in community that's the kind of thing i'd like to know more about in a place like melbourne but i don't know or maybe I just haven't discovered it yet where that would happen but then it's probably not the doors are not going to be open to me if it's about young people but you know music's not just a uh, a thing for young people if we look at different communities different traditions different opportunities but you know it's out of interest it's good to listen out for it and try and learn about it
0: and do you think that there's a sydney melbourne difference and i guess you could say that from the uk is that is birmingham's music identity and cultural policy is that kind of like us versus manchester or
1: (laughs) well there's no competition really um you know birmingham's obviously superlative by way of comparison with manchester london or um liverpool right but, you know, I mean, rivalries are also important to identity. That's true. Right? And maybe those things prompt bands to be important, but a bit like following football. You yeah, know. That,
0: that's probably a bad analogy. Why? <laughs> well, following football, I guess everyone's in it for the game, but there's some really fierce rivalries that, that can kind of over you know, overshadow. I well, guess, let's just
1: say fierce and passionate
0: yeah, are things synonyms, we associate with, with
1: music as much as as, as, as football.
0: True. We don't have enough football music either. Maybe they can't cancel each other out. Oh, route. they all
1: have their anthems. But the problem is with They're a funny lot of... Old dan- to go <laughs> back to radio and the difference between, <laughs> the difference between you know, licensed and unlicensed radio is that a lot of licensed radio tries to push us towards, to use the sporting analogy, music and culture is a bit more like playing bowls. When, you know, <laughs> we might want it a bit more like, you know soccer or AFL when it was the 1970s when everybody came off with blood pouring from oh, there.
0: Oh, gosh. I was just yeah, almost it's... going to go off on a track. of. I heard this great <laughs> podcast around the – and probably every football anthem has that story, but just how that song from, like, that musical, you know, you never, you never – You'll walk, never walk alone. Yeah, like the story of how it became an anthem was just like, this is very odd. I'd like a, to know that, yeah. I'll send it to you because yeah, sure. I can't relate it now, but I just knew it was an odd series of things. And then there's something about the actual songs that, you know, that suit a large number of people singing yeah. them. And there's a you know that song um Mr. Brightside by the who were they called? Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, we all do, right? Someone was saying the other day that, you know, you could practically just have a cover band that just played that song yeah. cuz everyone wants to sing along. Yeah. Them. So the whole world of songs that But they again, want to sing you
1: know, to. terraces in the UK were important places where songs would become part of a chant about your team.
0: Ah. What's yeah. a te- you mean a football terrace? Is that what it's where ter- people stood on the? it got rid sorry, of terraces. Like <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's it's
1: it's where people would have stood on to watch football, but now it's all seated. Ah, so in some yeah. senses, that culture's changed, but there's still a lot of football singing. Hmm. In a, in a, quite inventive and you know, sometimes originating chants, other times taking up cues from. I'll give you a good example. Is there's a Liverpool uh, FC player, Mo Salah, who's Egyptian. And one of the chants that the fans made up comes from, there's a British band, Dodgy, who had a song called, "It's." their biggest hit was called, It's yeah, Good Enough. If it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me, yada, yada. So they, the fans, and the song's about 25 years old, but when Mo Salah got signed, they they used that song around celebrating Mo Salah. And it, I think the lyrics are along the lines of, if he's on the field, if he's in the mosque, wherever Mo is, that's where I want to be. You know, so it's it's sort also interesting it. because of the way in which it's celebrated is his Islamic faith, which huh. is itself a, a curious sign of change. Right? I
0: feel like this could have been a whole other podcast. Oh well, As, you know, I'll come back. Music and football. Yeah, <laughs> I need to think about this one. Um, but on that strange landing point, <laughs> I was I was actually just trying to look up your formal title. So you're professor or we couldn't decide whether you're a professor I in am. cultural creative industries. creative industries at Monash University. Yeah. Do you have a book or anything you want to plug or just say? Not at the, the
1: moment minute? because I'm still trying to think my way through um, out of COVID but I've been working as I had suggested earlier around a number of things particularly around uh, migration and the creative industries so I'm always interested in learning about people's heritage and how it plays out Sometimes it's about barriers to entry into the sector. Other times it's about being entrepreneurial and, you know, making things happen. So since I came here, you know, going and meeting the people in Music in Exile or the Bois and all those places, people behind dance organisations, is what's feeding into the research I'm doing at the moment. Great.
0: Okay, Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. And and I'll press...